Well, last week we read Matthew 9, 9 through 13. And in that passage, Jesus calls Matthew, the tax collector, to follow him. Now, tax collectors were despised in that day. They were corrupt, greedy sellouts. They weren't viewed this way because of their unjust financial dealings alone. They were viewed this way because they worked for Rome. Tax collectors were hated. Tax collectors were considered traitors. And of course, the Pharisees were appalled at Jesus' willingness to welcome a tax collector into his core group of disciples. The Pharisees grumbled about it and wondered what Jesus could possibly be thinking associating himself with someone like Matthew. But then Jesus reminded them that a doctor doesn't come for the healthy. He comes for the sick. And Jesus didn't come to call the righteous. He came to call sinners. And then he challenges the Pharisees not to forget God's mercy, if they ever even knew it to begin with. Now, the takeaways from that passage were pretty clear. Number one, God often shows mercy to unexpected people. The people that we're tempted to withhold mercy from. The ones we look down upon because of their sin that is supposedly so much greater than ours. Those people may one day be our brothers and sisters in Christ. And if or when that day comes, will we find God's incredible mercy to be glorious? Or will we find it to be disgusting? Takeaway number two is that we must continually remember the mercy that God has shown us. Because remembering the sin that God called us out of, remembering where we came from, makes it much easier to show mercy to others. May the grace that God has shown us motivate us to share that grace with those around us. The third takeaway was that God's mercy, while it is great, it does not make light of sin. Jesus didn't say that these tax collectors and sinners were perfectly fine the way they are. He said they're sick, and he calls them to repentance, calls them to believe in him, calls them to follow him. And lest you think that God takes sin lightly, remember the price that had to be paid for our sin to be forgiven, the price of Jesus' broken body and shed blood on the cross. And then the fourth takeaway was that we cannot isolate ourselves from sinners. The old wisdom that we should be careful who we surround ourselves with is valuable, and it's true. And we must be humble enough and realistic enough to recognize when we might be led into sin by those around us. But we're also called to imitate our Lord. We're called to serve as bearers of God's mercy in a world that deserves judgment. We're called to go out and call sick sinners to Jesus Christ, the good doctor who has healed us. But in today's passage, as we move forward, even though we're only one chapter removed from last week, we go from Matthew 9 to Matthew 10, even though we're not very far away from last week's passage, the context changes drastically. As the story progresses, the tension quickly increases and the stakes are raised. Jesus' words become significantly more ominous in Matthew chapter 10, and his opponents are starting to become more desperate and more threatening. But as the plot thickens, 
two words in the gospel stay the same. And they just keep happening over and over and over. And those two words are, follow me. Follow me. So open to Matthew 10, verse 16. Feel free to use the Bibles we have here if you didn't bring one, and take one home if you don't own one. But before we pray, let's, before we read, let's pray together as a church. Father, again, thank you for today. Thank you for this time we have together to worship you. And Father, thank you for the privilege and the joy of reading your word. Um, I pray that we would read these passages, read these words, and as Joshua mentioned earlier, uh, remember that they are not just another set of religious writings. Um, You speak to us through your word. You spoke to Christians before us through your word, and you are still speaking to Christians now through your word. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to recognize your word for what it is, inspired, and that you would give us ears to hear it. Thank you for bringing us here, no matter where we've come from, what brought us here, why we're here. Thank you that we're all in this room, and Father, help us to worship you together with one voice uh, this morning. We glorify you, we praise you, we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, a lot has happened since we left off in Matthew chapter 9. Jesus' ministry continues. He performs more healings, he casts out another demon, and he's even managed to raise a dead girl back to life along the way. And then at the beginning of chapter 10, Jesus sends out his disciples to do the same things. Go out, heal the sick, cast out demons, raise people from the dead, do the stuff that I've been doing. And the disciples say, well, okay. And by now he's added a few more core followers pushing the number of disciples to 12, the number that we hear so much. But then before Jesus sends the 12 out, he gives them some very stern warnings. And that's where we begin reading in verse 16. Jesus says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men. For they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death. And the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So to put it nicely, the mission that Jesus sends the twelve disciples out on will not be easy. And that's why he tells them ahead of time that they will be 
persecuted. They'll be arrested, they'll be flogged, they'll be put on trial, they'll be betrayed by their own families. They will be hated by all for his name's sake. They will live as fugitives, fleeing from town to town. Sounds like a lot of bad news. But there is some good news tucked in here. Jesus assures the disciples that the Holy Spirit will give them the words to say. They'll be following in his footsteps. The one who endures to the end will be saved. And someday Jesus will return. But wait a minute. Jesus will return from what? I mean, he hasn't gone anywhere yet. And how will they be following in his footsteps? The things that Jesus just warned them about, being arrested, flogged, put on trial, none of that stuff has happened to Jesus, at least not yet. So clearly Jesus isn't just talking about the disciples' immediate mission. He's looking forward to a much bigger picture. He's looking ahead to the mission these disciples will devote the rest of their lives to after he has died, risen, and ascended. He's looking ahead to the mission that disciples well after he's gone will be called to. Disciples like us, for example. But let's move forward in the passage. Jumping to verse 34. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now, much of what Jesus says in verses 34 through 39 echoes what we read in verses 16 through 25, specifically his focus on division within families, parents against children, brother against brother, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. His words in verse 37 are very similar to what we read a couple weeks ago in chapter 8. That's when Jesus told the man who wanted to put off following him in order to bury his father to let the dead bury their own dead. Jesus is re-emphasizing this point that he matters more than family ties. Loyalty to him takes precedent over loyalty to your family. We've heard that before. But then you get to verse 38. And verse 38 is where the similarities stop. Because in verse 38, Jesus says, Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. He's talked about families. He hasn't talked about a cross. But he talks about a cross here. And when Jesus mentions the cross, he is previewing not just his own death. He's challenging the disciples to embrace the possibility that they could end up on crosses themselves for following him you know throughout this passage jesus warned the disciples of all the different forms of persecution they may face if they continue following him 
They might be arrested, they might be flogged, they might be dragged into court, they might be betrayed by their families, they might be hated, they might have to live life on the run. All that stuff sounds bad. But a cross, a cross was the ultimate form of persecution. It was, and arguably still is, one of the most gruesome and shameful methods of execution that sinful mankind has ever devised in our wicked hearts and minds. For example, Herod the Great, the man who had no problem killing other people's children in his hunt for Jesus some 30 years earlier, Herod the Great considered crucifixion too brutal a form of punishment. If Herod the Great looks at crucifixion and says, ugh, that's just too much, that tells you how bad it really is. So put yourself in the disciples' sandals when Jesus says this. The disciples might be thinking, hold on a minute, a cross? You never said anything about a cross. I mean, leaving my fishing business, uh, that wasn't that hard. Social rejection? Okay, that's a little bit tougher. Being alienated from my family? Man, Jesus, that one almost did me in, but for you, I can handle it. I'll keep following you. But a cross? You never said anything about a cross. A public and painful death? Jesus expecting his followers to do that just seems a little bit extreme, doesn't it? But here's the thing. Jesus means it. Take your cross and follow me wasn't a slip of the tongue. It wasn't Jesus being bombastic in the heat of the moment. It wasn't him intentionally using over-the-top words to get a point across. He means it. Take your cross and follow me. He means it so much that he will use the exact same phrase again in chapter 16, which is what we'll read next week. But today I want to spend the rest of our time focusing on how Jesus uses that phrase, take your cross and follow me, how he uses it in this chapter, and specifically how he uses that phrase in the context of persecution. Over the past week while I was preparing this sermon, I found myself in two different books. One of them is called Christianity at the Crossroads, How the Second Century Shaped the Future of the Church written by a man named Michael Kruger, published in 2018. And this book dedicates one of the earliest chapters to the persecution that many of the earliest Christians faced for their faith. Second century is from 100 to 200 AD, 50 to 150 years after Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. Now, at this time in history, persecution against Christians wasn't always uniform. Some forms of persecution were worse than others, and persecution could differ from place to place to place. But the persecution that did occur happened because Christians just didn't fit in. They accepted rich and poor, old and young, male and female, slave and free, Jew and Gentile. Christians were mocked as being lower class, unsophisticated, and foolish. They were known to reject common Roman practices like abortion and adultery. The Christians chose to forego common Jewish practices like circumcision and food laws, which is part of why the two groups began to drift apart. 
The point is that the early Christians faced persecution from different sides for different reasons in different ways. Now, the second book that I found myself in last week was called Fox's Book of Martyrs. You may have heard this one before, written by John Fox and published in 1563. So this one's kind of old. But that book contains stories of how many of the earliest Christians died bearing witness to Christ. We use the word martyr to describe someone who dies for their faith. The word martyr means to bear witness. Now, some of the stories in that book may be exaggerated or embellished, but they are certainly moving. There are stories of Christians who literally took up their crosses and were crucified for their faith. There are stories of Christians, both male and female, old and young, being stoned, beheaded, burned, thrown to wild animals, dragged by chariots, tossed into boiling water, drowned in rivers, stretched out on racks, locked in caves, strangled, flayed alive, and rubbed with salt, and poisoned. A cross may have been the ultimate form of persecution, but it wasn't the only form of persecution. And in that book, Fox contrasts the tombstones of Christians with the tombstones of non-Christians. The Christian tombstones would say things like, Born away of angels, and victorious in peace and in Christ. But then the non-Christian tombstones would say things like, Live for the present hour, since we are sure of nothing else. Another one said, Traveler, curse me not as you pass, for I am in darkness and cannot answer. Two very different tones. Two very different understandings of death from the Christian and the non-Christian in the second century. Now, it's challenging and inspiring to read these stories of Christians who have come before us, faced the kind of persecution Jesus warned his disciples about in Matthew 10, and yet still obeyed the command to take their crosses and follow him. But the truth is that persecution of Christians isn't just a fact from long ago. It's a current event in our world as well. Almost exactly four years ago today, video surfaced of 21 Egyptian Christians being beheaded on a beach. In July of 2016, a Catholic priest in France had his throat slit by two ISIS fighters in the middle of Mass. In December of last year, 2018, a Chinese pastor named Wang Yi was arrested by Chinese authorities along with 100 members of his church. And as of late January, his whereabouts are still unknown. So even today, Christians around the world are facing persecution. Even today, Christians around the world are taking their crosses, literally, and following Jesus. Now, I don't share any of these stories just for the sake of shock value or just to scare you. And I do not dare compare the challenges that we Christians in this room deal with, to the violent persecution that Christians before us and Christians in other parts of the world have faced in the past or are facing now. The truth is that the challenges of life as a Christian in Fishers, Indiana, in 2019, do not belong in the same category as the challenges of life as a Christian in 2nd century Rome, or life as a Christian in the Middle East, 
or China. But what if that were to change? What if someday down the road you were faced with the kinds of persecution Jesus describes in Matthew 10? What if your faithfulness to Christ were to lead to physical suffering, being dragged into court, rejection by those you love, or even having to pick up and start life over somewhere else? You likely can't imagine being in that kind of situation. But then again, at this point in the story, neither did Peter or Andrew or James or John or Matthew or any of the rest of Jesus' disciples. They couldn't have imagined that until Jesus said, take your cross and follow me. So the question for us is, will we be ready to take our crosses and follow him? But then right in the middle of all these scary words about persecution and crosses, Jesus tells his disciples to fear God and not man. Look at Matthew 10, verse 26. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. We mentioned earlier those reassurances that Jesus gave his disciples as he warned them about persecution. He reassured them that the Holy Spirit will give them the words to say. They'll be following in his footsteps. The one who endures to the end will be saved, and someday he'll come back. All very reassuring. But perhaps the greatest reassurance that Jesus can give persecuted Christians is found here in verses 29 through 33. God sees us. God knows us. God values us. And no suffering that will ever befall us is outside of his control. And those who acknowledge Jesus in the face of temporary persecution, temporary suffering, will be acknowledged by God eternally in heaven. So you and I have been called by Jesus to take our crosses and follow him. It's true that the challenges we may face today for our faith may be relatively minor. The crosses we take up may be more metaphorical than literal. We may face forms of suffering, hardship, and even persecution for our faith that are much less violent and much less bloody than Jesus' disciples a long time ago or disciples in other parts of the world right now. But we're all reading the same scripture. We're reading the same scripture that those Egyptian Christians read before they went to that beach. We're reading the same scripture that those second century Christians read 
We're reading the same scripture as every other Christian who has died for their faith. So no matter how different our lives and our situations might be from theirs, the words are the same. The challenge is the same. Take your cross and follow Jesus, no matter what it looks like. And if someday down the road, the persecution you face for your faith in Jesus becomes a little more explicit, a little more extreme, will you be ready? Will we continue to bear witness to Christ no matter the cost? Will we fear God more than man? Will we be like those faithful followers of Jesus who took their crosses centuries ago? Will we be like those courageous Christians on the beach in 2015? The French priest who died in his church in 2016 or the pastor arrested in China in 2018? By God's grace and with God's help, the help that Jesus promises his disciples in Matthew 10, I pray that we would be up to that calling, if or when it comes. Jesus said in verse 39, Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Be willing to lose your life for the sake of Christ, and by God's grace find eternal life. We take our crosses because Jesus took his. And we know that because Jesus took his cross for our sins, God will not deny those who follow him. In the second century, a pagan by the name of Lucian liked to mock Christians. And actually, his writings were pretty popular. People liked making fun of Christians. And at one point, Lucian said this. These poor wretches have convinced themselves, first and foremost, that they are going to be immortal and live for all time. Thus, they despise death and even willingly give themselves into custody. Well, Lucian was right. We Christians really are convinced that we will live for all time in the presence of God. And that's why we don't fear men. That's why we don't fear death. That's why we don't fear persecution. And that's why we follow Jesus wherever he leads us, even if it means taking a cross along the way. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this morning, even passages of Scripture that are Sobering and intimidating and heavy. Father, I pray that you would be with us as we consider what it looks like for us to take our crosses and follow Jesus. Again, we really can't even compare, begin to compare any of the hardships or the sufferings or the persecutions that we may face for following Christ. Very few of us have stories of legitimate persecution. But at the same time, that could change. And Father, I pray that if that happens, that we would be ready. That you would give us the courage and the faithfulness that Christians before us have had to bear witness to your Son, no matter what it costs them. Father, we pray for brothers and sisters in Christ around the world who are suffering at this moment 
There are Christians in other parts of the world dying. There are Christians in other parts of the world in pain right now for their faith. And Father, we ask you to strengthen them, give them endurance. Father, if possible, free them. But if that's not within your will, help them bear witness faithfully to those around them, even in their suffering. Father, again, we love you and we worship you. And we have confidence knowing that we can take up our crosses because your son took up his. Father, that is our motivation. That is our reassurance. That is our confidence that no matter what happens to us in this life, we have eternal life to look forward to. Help that to shape what we say and what we do day in and day out. Help us to bear witness courageously, no matter what it costs us. And help us to suffer faithfully, if or when you call us to. We glorify you. We worship you. We thank you for your son. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.